0: The following message is a part of the Teaching Ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Good evening Grace Bible Church and friends of grace. Our passage from this last Sunday was from Jude chapter 1 verses 11 through 13. Jude chapter 1 verses 11 through 13, and this constitutes the second half of the larger section of Jude chapter 1 verses 8 through 13. And so, as we walked through it, we recognized a number of things. But this is the the second half of the indictment against those who have crept in among us. And so, we we recognize the larger uh, context of the book. Jude had a an ambition and a desire to write to them about their common salvation, but he felt compelled that it was necessary to write to address the fact that there are some who have crept in among the church body, the local church body, to do it harm. And with that, the call to contend earnestly for the faith. And so. He's gone from that to um, addressing the the forthcoming judgment, the sure judgment they will experience, to now in this section, 8 to 13, an indictment, a a laying out of the the culpability and the, the rationale for his charges against them, that they are indeed guilty of these things and they will be held accountable accordingly. Now, with that being said, we still chose to, to give special attention to a matter for the first half of our message, as it were, and um, specifically building off of what we finished with last week. And so we, here we, have the, um, we finished with the blaspheme Glorious Ones, and that was the week before. And so we, we addressed, we couldn't develop it last week, so we went through it this week, Um, What's the nature of the engagement with spiritual matters when we're called to contend and yet we're not to contend in this way? Obviously, that was an expression of arrogant ignorance, doing things which even Michael, the archangel, wouldn't do. And so what is the nature of our contending in terms of spiritual forces and yet we engage men and yet we don't engage in the flesh? So trying to resolve some of that tension and we work through it, maybe not fully satisfying it, but I think enough to answer Um, the the call to contend. So that being said, um, the first passage that we gave a measure of treatment to, we gave a measure of treatment to several. Some of them we'll highlight now. Others, um, we uh, would direct you back to the the message as a whole. So by way of review, some of the historic examples included Matthew chapter 4, where you have um, Jesus in a a condition of of, uh, arguably... uh, he's challenged because he's gone without food or water for 40 days. And so being that he was the son of man and a natural man in that capacity, um, fully man and fully God, obviously, it was uh, already a, a taxing situation. And here Satan engages him with the distortions of truth. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't engage in some cosmic conflict. He doesn't draw swords. He doesn't uh, rebuke Satan and, and, and dress him down. He does send him away at the end. That is true, and I think that was part of the authoritative role that he had as the Son of God. But in the engagement itself, it was distortions of Scripture answered with truth of the Scriptures, and that's how he engaged. He engaged with speaking truth, namely truth of the Scriptures. And then we consider the spiritual engagement that transpired within Jesus's inner circle um, two men who walked closely with Jesus were directly impacted by the influence and assaults of Satan. And obviously you're familiar with both of these, Judas and Peter. So that inner circle, the 12, and then even within that inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John, of them, Peter was assaulted in this context. But first we address Judas, and, and how did Jesus address him himself? He um, wasn't ignorant, wasn't unaware We have that from the the clear pattern of context throughout the Gospels, and specifically in the Upper Room Discourse, we know that he was aware of Judas's uh, 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 position and that he was compromised, as it were, and Satan was influencing him. And so here we recognize that, what did he do? He humbly served Judas, and then he sent him out. He separated him from the the other uh, believers, as it were, and with that, the benefits and blessings that came with being in their company. Now... We did press the matter that this was a historic incident. It was a very unique incident. But perhaps some principles could be drawn from it in the sense that, again, there wasn't some uh, just giant conflict. There wasn't some wrestling match. There wasn't uh, um, doing some radical engagements and exercising things out of Judas or, or demanding things of him. Rather, he does send him away. He does separate him. And even that in a context of rather gracious as well Now, there's other context in which we'll look at that uh, we're more elevated in the immediate rebuke because of the circumstances, and we have to be mindful of that. Anytime we're looking at historical examples, we have to be mindful of the historical context. For our purposes, how did Jesus deal with Satan's influence within his inner circle? So Judas put out. The second man who experienced a supernatural assault on him by one no less than Satan, obviously, was Peter. And we noted how Jesus responded to this. Again, it wasn't some cosmic showdown. It wasn't sensational rebukes. What did he do? He tells Peter what he did. Peter, I've prayed earnestly for you. He prayed for Peter. And that's, I would say, if we're going to say, well, historical examples, and we've got to be mindful of context, I think this is a principle that will carry on quite naturally and easily and consistent with what we would expect of the New Testament believer to pray, to labor in prayer. And such was the way that Jesus exercised spiritual care and a spiritual conflict for one of his most beloved disciples. And then we went on to look at other examples, such as times when an immediate and firm rebuke of a person was necessary. And so we noted in Acts chapter 13, Paul had a circumstance, there was an immediate need that demanded an immediate response, and there is a time and a place for that. It might not be always the practice. Usually, it's going to be better practice to pull someone aside, give someone an opportunity to repent, to address something privately. But sometimes in a dynamic public engagement, which is endangering the integrity of truth or the welfare of the body, you might have to answer within a more immediate and severe rebuke. Now, again, this is a historic example, and it does supersede what we could mimic because he obviously— Um, Smites them with blindness as well, which that goes beyond the scope of what obviously we would be considering. But we can have the the principle that um, an immediate need required an immediate action. And so there's a range of responses to include rebuke when necessary public rebuke, immediate rebuke. We also discussed other expressions of impact by Satan, some of which for us will be less clear in parsing uh, the supernatural conflict and providential circumstances. Uh, we have uh, Paul with um, a thorn in the flesh, a personal struggle, and um, infliction on him, and then we also have him speaking of being hindered by Satan. I don't know that we're going to be able to parse some of those things apart in our natural lives, and we may just have to recognize the providence of God directs even these things, and so sometimes... It's going to be more and less obvious, but we're not going to necessarily have the insight that uh, Paul did in such matters. But Paul did have a clarity in such matters. In these circumstances, we can observe how he handled them, having that insight. Namely, he's uh, recognized in terms of his own personal um, affliction that it was a messenger of Satan. And so we, rec- uh, we see that he recognized it was a messenger of Satan. It wasn't ambiguous. And yet what was his response? Is It was very much like Jesus Applying his care toward Peter, it expressed itself in dependence upon God in prayer. He pleaded to the Lord, and then he trusted the Lord with the outcome, which was one of suffering. And when recognizing that he and others were obstructed in their desires to minister in Thessalonica, he accepted this burden and trusted the Lord accordingly. And he continued to, to desire and pursue it, and, and the Lord did open up doors and uh, was able to continue to minister them in another time, in another capacity. But he recognized he's being obstructed, supernaturally obstructed. Again, not something we're going to necessarily be able to parse for ourselves, um, but it was one that he responded to with confidence in God. Lord, you're in control of these things. And um, he didn't try to exercise some um, sensational expression of supernatural authority in the matter. We also discussed some broader and more general expressions of spiritual conflict actions and conduct rooted in the influences of deceitful spirits and outworkings of what Paul calls doctrines of demons. And so again, if we're going to have anywhere, this is spiritual conflict and it's one of the epistles, it's one of the letters. And so it's not just a historical reference. Here you have deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So how do we answer that? Well, these matters were expressed, first of all, how were they how did they work themselves out? How do the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons work themselves out? Well, there was expressed as hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their conscience, those who forbid marriage and impose artificial dietary restrictions, not especially sensational, but genuine spiritual struggle and rooted in mistruths and distortions of truth. And so we ultimately came to the conclusion that spiritual conflict is also um, bound up, as it was with that example we just provided, in terms of the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. That spiritual conflict is ultimately bound up in a willful decision to either choose and feed sin, or in choosing and feeding righteousness. That's what spiritual conflict really, in my understanding, would come down to: is what are you, what are you choosing to? To, to feed and identify with. Is it going to be sin or is it going to be righteousness? And we see this worked out in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. John writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does sin is of the devil, because the devil sins from the beginning. The Son of God was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God by this the children of the of the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God as well as the one who does not love his brother and then building off of this principle we consider a variety of ways that we preserve ourselves from the dangers of a spiritual compromise and failure And and just some examples, and we have some text up there from Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 2. We do things like not leaving anger unaddressed. That's a spiritual conflict. Um, If you leave anger unaddressed, being careful not to foster a dangerous context for pride to take root. You're making yourself vulnerable to, again, a spiritual assault. Maintaining holiness and self-control in marital relationships. Again, may sound very basic and simple, but it's a reality and it's an expression of wisdom and shrewd conduct so as to not make oneself unnecessarily vulnerable. And being quick to forgive others. Again, an expression of uh, walking in joyful obedience and not giving Satan an opportunity in such things. And again, we, we saw pastoral instructions on engaging and these spiritual conflicts. And so in Paul writing to Timothy, we saw, again, what the nature of some of the struggle is with deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It's what we would say is sin, and that's exactly how it expressed itself in relationships and engagements. And so how do we respond to that? He makes it very, very clear here in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, and the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So did you catch that last part? They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Talk about spiritual warfare and spiritual conflict, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so what's the nature of engaging in that context? Well, It's being a disposition of not quarrelsome, being kind, able to teach, patient when wrong, gently correcting. That's the nature of our engagement. And trusting God to do his work in the hearts of others, to include liberating them from the devil's influence upon them. And some final but... Uh, critical elements here were the clear patterns of instructions to resist the devil. So again, if you're looking for something else, okay, so joyful, faithful obedience, feeding righteousness, directing myself into a life and pattern that's pleasing to God and engaging others accordingly. But I want something more precise and more uh, overtly engaging in spiritual conflict. Well, we have resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a very clear command it's framed in humility, the times that it's expressed, and even suffering. So resisting the devil doesn't mean that you're not going to uh, experience a measure of struggle. Again, we saw that with Paul. Remember, he did what? He, he prayed, Lord, would you deliver me? Would you free me from this messenger of Satan? And the Lord just expresses that his grace is sufficient. And that means it's grace is sufficient in suffering and struggle, including in spiritual matters. And so resisting the devil and then also doing so in a matter of humility and confidence in God, even as it produces potentially a measure of suffering. And then finally noting that perhaps the clearest expression of our resisting well, so how do we resist? How do we resist? Well, I think a safe place would be to go to Ephesians 6, most well-known uh, territory of the this, uh, this subject matter. And there, what are we directed to do? Well, we're directed to the daily expressions of faith and faithfulness of the Christian life. It talks about truth righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. So again, did you you catch those elements. This is spiritual conflict. This is overt spiritual warfare, the armor of God. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. And from there, we turned our attention to the second half of Jude's indictment. And so that was all kind of an outworking of We don't want to fall into the category of blaspheming, glorious ones, and that arrogant ignorance that that expresses, but yet we are called to contend. And now, again, we're turning our attention to the second half of this indictment, which began with a statement of, of woe, of woe. And we considered a range of, of what that, of, of how woe is used. And, it's in the Old Testament. We could have developed it much further, could have developed even more from the New Testament, but I gave probably about six or seven examples from the New Testament. And with that, I wanted you to see a pattern. I want you to see a pattern that with woe comes a weightiness, a heaviness to that. And there's also, I would argue, a measure of grief. Um, Now, sometimes that measure of grief, grief is because of unfortunate circumstances and struggle Um, such as woe to those who have to flee as Jerusalem is assaulted and attacked. That's not necessarily uh, an indictment against them, but a a weighty grief. But it's most frequently, from my observations, used with judgment. And I think you can mingle those three, three things together, the weight, the grief, and judgment. It is a weighty, grievous judgment, all wrapped up into those three letters for us, the woe. And Jude uses that. He framed the weight of this woe, in view of his, um, the, the continuation of his indictment. And, and i would pressed to think about this um, on Sunday with, think about the fact that, again, he wanted to write about our common salvation. That was what he fully intended to do, but with a clear urgency. He knew he had to redirect his attention to speak to this matter of those who have crept into Christ's church, and with this, the call to contend. And then he t- gives the weighty matters that produce the firm indictment and uh, how they've, uh, these offenders have supplanted the, the, the true authority of the scriptures for an authority of their own making, namely dreams, and then expressing the offenses of defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blossoming glorious ones. And then he comes to this point. So, all that build up, I wanted to write this way, I had to do this. There's language of judgment, there's language of the, the weightiness of their indictment. And now, coming to the second half, he says, Woe to them! Again, that weighty, grievous judgment. And then he goes on to unpack uh, their like offenses. These those who have crept in among us. The, the like offenses they have to three notorious offenders of old. Uh, names that just mentioning their names, things rush to mind as well as they should. Cain and um, Balaam and um, um, Korah. Cora being the the probably the one that is uh, receives the least amount of attention and thought, but very very important, especially to Jude here. But um, before he finishes after delivering that they're like these and their offenses and and, and, and really drilling down on that. he finishes after that with an impactful uh, barrage of of, met, of of images to describe their clear guilt and danger and so he says they're like these and then this is how they're like it and there's a there's a build up to it and then it's bam, 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 they're like this, they're like this, they're like this, they're like this, and just uh, hits us with several graphic and and, um, very clear illustrations to to identify the nature and character and ways of these offenders. So Jude started with their having gone the way of Cain, um, having chosen to to have fed their insatiable appetite to sin, this murderous and, and profoundly wicked appetite. And so in this way, and again, we developed these a little bit more on Sunday, but just for a way by review and snapshot, they've gone the way of Cain. They've they've fed that appetite, that insatiable appetite for sin, an appetite that would ultimately lead to death and destruction. And then he went on to express their pouring themselves out into the air of Balaam, um, a character we gave really a significant amount of attention to when he was referenced to in a like manner with the false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, and we could basically summarize it perhaps to say he was a man who had a price and who craftily led God's people down a path of stumbling and specifically of sexual immorality. And so he was a prophet for hire, willing to curse, not permitted to curse. And so what does he ultimately do? He leads them into a path in which they stumbled and clearly a path of sexual immorality. Not a surprise considering what Jude has already stated, how they've turned the grace of God into licentiousness. This is an expression of their continued character and the indictment that follows with it. And then finally, Jude gave particular attention to these offenders and their association with Korah and his rebellion and the, and the suffering and the punishment that came with that, the, the perishing that came with that, and specifically Korah, who rebelled against the leadership God had put over His uh, put over His people, Moses and Aaron, and the establishment of the priesthood. As it was a rebellion that led to his perishing, a radical perishing that we talked about and looked back at in number sixteen that nothing like this is seen before, where the earth opened up and swallowed and closed up over a people, and then the fire coming down over the 250 other leaders that were part of the rebellion, and, and others who suffered in conjunction with this. So this is a radical moment of clear and uh, judgment. It wasn't just an indictment. It was actually a judgment that they experienced. So a rebellion that, again, led to the perishing of suffering of Korah, those around him, and others as well. And we noted how Jude incorporated the culpability and suffering of the clandestine offenders with Korah and his company, how he states that they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. And we talked about how that's uh, uh, the nature of the grammar there is that it's, he's saying it as though it's already happened, but it's a future engagement, and he's using a future engagement, uh, um, drawing on a historic event to talk about something that it's as good as it's happened because it will happen. And so they have, they will perish in a like manner as Korah. Who rebelled against God's authority as was expressed through the leadership that the Lord had put in place. So they've covered or they've conducted themselves in a like manner, and they'll suffer a like fate. And then finally, regarding these three examples of uh, Cain and Balaam and Korah, we noted there was an intentional building of their language and emphasis. The nouns and the verbs here are building each time, each one, from one to the next. It wasn't chronological order, it was a building order. So from having gone and way to pouring themselves out and error and deception to perishing and rebellion. So again, gone and way to pouring themselves and error and deception to perishing and rebellion. So there's an intensification that's happening here in this indictment, and to express again not only their character and their ways, but the outcome of it. So um, he's communicating very clearly and developing and making his case, as it were. And then I'll, I would say he's kind of finished his case um, in terms of the argument proper, and then he just lays on the nature and the character of these ways, of, of these persons who've crept in among us, and he does so with a, an intense uh, poetic imagery, as it were, with just this barrage of examples here. These last two verses, again, closing out the indictment, uh, giving, as it were, kind of a closing um, well, a closing argument to the indictment itself, a list of descriptions of them he expresses their nature, again, their conduct, their dangers, ultimately their outcome. They deceptively destroy, they offer much, they give nothing, they vomit up their offenses before others. Uh, ultimately, they suffer their due outcome. And again, he expresses all that with such a uh, really skill of, of language here. Again, the hidden reefs and their love feasts, um, clouds without water, um, autumn trees that are doubly dead and uprooted, the waves casting up their foam and the stars that are drifting off into the dark blackness for which they've been reserved forever. So such is the outcome and consequence of those who have crept in among us. So these six verses, 8 through 13, um, we covered over the, the past two weeks, they, they really provide a clear and firm indictment of the danger and guilt of these persons. These persons who have crept into Christ's church to do harm, they haven't crept in because they're curious. They haven't crept in because uh, they just they want to understand things better or because they're even interested in the things of God. They've crept in to do harm. And with this uh, and with them, we're going to have to contend. We're going to have to struggle. We're going to have to fight and resist. And we have uh, made plain that there's no small measure of our contending. is among other acts of common expressions of obedience uh, from walking in holiness, to speaking truth, to correcting error, we also pray. Remember that? That's what Jesus did for Peter um, in terms of the care for him. It's what Peter did for, the, or what Paul did for the care of himself in such matters. It's part of the engagement of the armor of God to be praying for one another and praying. And so we need to, to consider among the various expressions of application, what are some ways that we can respond in prayer? And so first I would highlight the four items excuse me, that we proposed last week. And then I'd add the following a few, I think about three more from our engagement this week. So again, because this is a two-part engagement of the one passage, I'm going to repeat the the first uh, four that we introduced last week, namely that we would pray pray that we would uh, maintain a pattern of purity, submission, and humility— That's our first one. Our second one, pray that we would stay rooted in the authority of the scriptures and not be drawn away by lesser things that would appear to speak to the moment or undermine God's word. Our third, pray that we would maintain a consistent disposition of prayer that expresses our need for God to teach us, open our eyes, and help us understand his word. The fourth, and this is a carryover from last week, pray that we would have wisdom in contending well in a manner consistent with what the Lord has plainly instructed and not in some arrogant, ignorant manner. And then to this, I'd add three more. First, pray that we would be faithful in the common expressions of faithfulness that constitutes spiritual warfare. I'm sorry, I'm tripping over my own words there. Again, so let's try that. Pray that we would be faithful in the common expressions of faithfulness that constitute spiritual warfare. Pray that we would appreciate the weight of the woe pronouncement here in Jude, allowing it to produce a proper mixture of humility and vigilance while also recognizing that righteous judgment lies in the hands of God. And then finally, pray that we would be sober in our understanding of the threats to Christ's church and vigilant in our contending to include the ever-present responsibilities to walk well now and prepare for that which may yet be before us. So we recognize that uh, there's a, a season of relative peace in our present circumstances. Yes, the world's challenging us. Yes, there are expressions of clear rebellion and antagonism toward Christ's church, but the likelihood of that increasing is is rather plain, especially to those of us who have had any measure of seasons of walking with the Lord. And so, We take advantage of these uh, relatively or respectively peaceful seasons, and we train, we prepare. How can we contend well? We contend well now by rooting yourselves in faithful obedience in the very matters that the Lord's established throughout the Scriptures, so that when the time does come to contend more overtly and more uh, under greater scrutiny and challenge, That you'll hold fast, and that you'll contend in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, that reflects the perseverance that the Spirit of God provides, and the um, an understanding of the means and manner, as well as the threat and the enemy and opposition. But resting also in the fact that while we do contend, and we do fight, and we do resist, and we do hold fast, that as this passage eight to thirteen has been framed, it's been framed with it was preceded by judgment, and it's going to be followed by judgment in terms of Enoch's um, prophecy and the weeks to come. And speaking of weeks or even days to come, tomorrow evening, we're going to um, spend some time in Psalm 119. Um, we're going to review and refresh uh, how far we've come through verses 1 through 80. And uh, part of our hope is to to read through um, that full section and, and remind ourselves, how did the psalmist teach us to pray? What did he How did he help us think about the Word of God? How did he help us think about ourselves and this world and others? And to try to draw back to mind, to stir up by way of remembrance, uh, that which we've walked through on a week-by-week basis, and to encourage you as you continue in this uh, long engagement with Psalm 119. And then next Sunday, um, we're going to be in Psalm 16, obviously a a break from our pattern in Jude. It's to honor the fact that uh, Resurrection Sunday is a special point of emphasis in our Um, joyful hope and uh, we mark our calendars accordingly. We're going to give some special attention and we're going to do that by speaking to Psalm uh, Psalm 16 um, in its own right to address what did David have to say and how do we appreciate and understand the Psalm as it stands. And then Letting it direct us to the glory of Christ's resurrection, which it plainly references to, as it's been made use uh, as it's been made used of, uh, made use of, as made as the New Testament authors made use of it um, in terms of, I won't let my holy one undergo decay or corruption in the grave, and so um, it points obviously to the the joy and the hope of our resurrection because of Christ's resurrection, the first fruits. So, I hope uh, that was helpful to you as we are again continuing to, to labor through Jude, this uh, very, very short letter, but with a, a clear call and a clear reason for the call and are contending for the faith.